You're listening to Life in the Balance. I'm Jamila Krempel, filling in for Aaron Hankin this month. This show looks at systemic issues in Baltimore, and we see them first through the lens of people who have experienced these issues, then we hear from people who are working on solutions. The show has covered everything from the rise of gun violence to teenage depression to post-incarceration struggles. You can find past shows online at wypr.org slash life in the balance. Today, we're talking about increasing the visibility of black women, their experiences, their concerns, and their contributions to our country and to Baltimore. Black women face unique challenges. Census data from 2015 shows that in the U.S., black women working full-time earned 63 cents for every dollar a white male earned. Black women made up 17.6 percent of the low-wage workforce, and black women fill only 3.8 percent of board roles in Fortune 500 companies. Grim statistics outside of work. The New York Times reports black women are 12 times as likely to die from childbirth-related causes as white women. The Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault emphasizes that black women are more likely to experience sexual assault, with 40 percent of women of color reporting coercive sexual contact by the time they are 18. This data should not be surprising. Black women have faced racial and gender discrimination, violence, and economic and political disenfranchisement for hundreds of years. But like the generations of women that have come before them, black women are continuing to rise above the challenges. They're earning college degrees at higher and higher rates. They're entering male-dominated fields like business and science. And more and more, black women are seeking political leadership and advocating for their families and communities. Here in Baltimore, a majority-minority city, when we talk about issues facing the city and its residents, how often do we hear discussions that center around black women? Well, today, we're going to add to that conversation. First, I'd like to welcome Shan Wallace. She's an award-winning photographer, artist, and activist from East Baltimore. She also has recently created the new Instagram project, Sisters with Stories, which curates her images of black women and girls. Shan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Excellent. You grew up in Baltimore, right? Yes. Obviously, you're an East Baltimore native. Why did you decide to focus on, or um, when and why did you decide to focus on documenting the experiences of black women? I'll say, I'll say I started um, just documenting black people, period, around um, when the Trayvon Martin incident happened. I remember, I believe the People's Powers Assembly, they had mm-hmm. a, um, a march. They had a, a rally and a march at City Hall um, when I was going to Bowie at the time, so I drove up from Bowie, Bowie State University. Yeah, I drove up from Bowie and I went, and that was a, I had my camera, and that was the first time I attended a rally. It was the first time I saw people congregate and and just come together like this. I usually see it on television or maybe in a magazine, but I never saw it in Baltimore ever. Um, and so I started taking some photographs, and it felt good. My work and my journey as a photographer started to develop as the years started to come as we had our own uprising here and we had the officers go um, to trial. And we had I was back in Baltimore and we were just surrounded by our stories and our narratives and our experiences. And when the Freddie Gray um, incident happened, I just saw so many reporters and so many different networks just come and just grab stories and go, grab stories and go, and just completely reflect Baltimore in a way that I just didn't think was organic and actually as truthful as it could be. And so I still started, I still kept working and um, just taking photographs every day and really trying to 
see how I could align myself with this work to be impactful and to, you know, let it come from the heart and let it just be inspired and influenced by love. I realized like, hey, I really can focus so much more on black women and it is supported. And that started to open up the ways for me to really figure out what that looked like for me. And it took some time, I do admit, because for me, I think as a young black woman, I focused so I focused so much on being black and being black and being a woman that that's hand in hand. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a black woman. And so my problems in my life, my identity looks much different than everybody else's except for other black women. And so I think it's so easy. It was so easy for me to uh, truly fight that racial fight and not that sexist fight as well. And so it was a way that I also check myself and hold myself account- accountable. If I'm going to photograph black people, I need to make sure that I am gonna, I am photographing black women, not only because they matter and they exist, but because I am also one. And I think that everything starts with self. And so it was a way for me to kind of check myself, hold myself accountable, and also just be productive and truly show black women um, as the way I see them, you know. The the women who are in your photographs, do you call them participants, subjects? What's what's your preferred word to describe them? Um, family. Family. Okay. Yeah, I call them family. Um, because all of these black women I've spoken to and I've talked to and I've learned something from, and we start off as strangers, but we get to know one another. There's so much that goes into photographing black women. Um, two things struck me in looking at the Sisters with Stories Instagram and looking at um, the images in Ain't I a Woman. One was that um, it was so intergenerational. And I feel like some people might think of Instagram, even though there's people of all ages who have Instagram accounts, mm-hmm. they might think of it as like a young person's platform. But you really have um, a, a, a wide range of ages of women in uh, in these photos. You've got elementary school kids, millennials, if you want to call them that, um, seniors. So that was really, um, really beautiful to see that. And also the um, just the pride and the confidence of a lot of the women that you photographed. There's like a lot of heads held high and, you know, even like a little attitude, like a hand on a hip and like a hip jutted out, which was really cool, even though we learn in some of the captions because you don't just take pictures. You share a little bit of their stories mm-hmm. that they've shared with you, with us. And some people share that, um, you know, they're going through some tough times. But there's this confidence and this grace that comes through. And that really struck me. So if you could talk a little bit about that, about the age of the participants mm-hmm. and how they portray themselves. It's, it's such an important moment when I do Sisters of Stories. It's a, such a learning moment. A lot of times bef- before I even take the photograph, before we even um, even get into the creative collaboration, um, we spend maybe an hour or two just getting to know one another, having girlfriend talk. You know, a, a lot of this is just like me linking up with my homegirls and just talking about our day, talking about where we're from. And so there's a lot of emotional labor that happens when we talk and when we get to know one another I think that it's really important for me to speak to my elders I really feel like that that um my elders is who I don't hear from the most um because a lot of my photographs take place in the streets and I don't see a lot of old people in the streets um sometimes I go to places where they may be like a hair salon or maybe um like a corner store and so I, it's been very important to make sure I go out of my natural routine and go seek my elders and go talk to them and learn from them. 
And so it's really important for me to speak to women who are much older than me and then much younger than me. Um, I my my personal life, my like surroundings always include my peers, people who are like my age or maybe a little younger, someone in their 20s. But I think it's really important to speak to my elders and speak to, you know, women my mother's age and my grandmother's age and my little cousin's age. I think that we can all learn from one another. And that is a part of representation. We come in different sizes and different, um, (laughs) yes, different sizes, different bra (laughs) sizes, different (laughs) shoe sizes, but we come at different ages as well. And we all got something to learn from one another. And so that's just a part of the, you know, representation, not just having a specific type of age group, but all of us, grandmother, mother, grandkid. Um, And so that's just really important. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Life in the Balance. I'm your guest host, Jamila Krempel, and I'm speaking with local award-winning photographer and activist Shan Wallace. Shan, the women you photographed as I said, don't just let you take their picture. They share um, a little bit about their personal experiences. Mm-hmm. What are some of the reoccurring themes or issues that you hear black women talking about through your artistic work or just in your day-to-day life? A lot of black women I've spoken to, and I haven't included this all in the series, but are surviving some type of sexual assault, sexual violence. It's easy to be- It's easy to think that, you know, a lot of women have been sexually assaulted or dealt with some type of sexual violence, but to see it and to hear it on a daily basis, that's another thing for me. So that's that's something that I hear a lot about, you know, just sexual assault and violence and just surviving and trying to heal and being confined to invisible cages while having to go out in the world and perform and be on exhibit all the time. And it's truly, yeah, it's truly been a, just a, a an eye-opener to just seeing women heal in so many ways and seeing women just really truly survive and really just try to be the best selves visibility just being seen being acknowledged being heard being listened to um and that's the role I try to play you know like I'm just another sister here to listen to you sister you know you're a sister listening to me we have these really deep conversations that bring us closer and I am always surprised at how many um, black women actually agree to be a part of the project. But I don't, ta- I don't take that for granted at all. But I, what helps me understand their um, consent so much is just truly thinking about how often they're heard, you know, and how often they're included in the conversation, how often there's some type of representation for them. Um, and so visibility has been... Um, something that a lot of the women that I photographed, uh, something that we talk about, and something that they are happy that I'm contributing to. Another reoccurring injustice is uh, accessibility to basic needs, you know, like health care um, and like good health care. And when I think about health care, I think a lot about our black mothers and just thinking about how just thinking about complications of, you know, childbirth and thinking about a disparity between white women and black women when it comes to, you know, um, black women dying, you know, when they're giving birth or complications and them not making it through. When we look at those numbers, they're, they're very different. And just hearing stories about trauma surrounding childbirth, you know, wanting to be 
very happy and feeling liberated because you brought a child into this world, but also just feeling pain and surviving um, all while attending to a child. That can be really hard. pressures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And outside of those injustices, I I hear and feel a lot of joy from black women. The fact that they are alive, the fact that they know that they look good, the <laughs> fact that they have children um, graduated from college, the fact that their hard work is paying off and that they can go and get their eyebrows and nails done. I'm really seeing how black women, we really appreciate the small joys in life and that we really appreciate um, happiness and the little that we have because we don't have as much as we should, but we still don't take that for granted. And so with the injustice there's balance there's a lot of balance in the series and in the conversation because a lot of those moments can be really tough to hear someone truthfully um talk about something they've been through but then on the other hand there's just there's this beautiful black sisterhood where it's like you go girl you know I'm rooting for you I'm rooting for you to be able to attend your child's graduation and they're rooting for me to be able to continue the work that I do because they believe that it's important like you said, there's a balance. It's not all about um, others enduring pain or going through mm-hmm. pain. There's um, there's joy and there's um, some lightheartedness, too. Um, some of the photographs show women in the beauty shop or displaying their hairstyles. Um, hair is an important thing to a lot of women, mm-hmm. to a lot of women, no matter what your culture is. But why was it important to you in, in this series and in Ain't I Woman to show what is a very important part of the black female experience, which is hair and hair culture? I think, honestly, hair culture is so, it's so dynamic. It's 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 so much. Like, you, when I think about uh, black hair, I think about people trying to touch it, you know. I, I, I think about... I think about that, too. Those annoying, <laughs> those annoying times that you got to deal with your hair. Um, but then I think about how it's a part of our identities, how we express ourselves through our hair. Just the hair culture, it means a lot to me. I have dreads now and my hair is extremely important to me. And just thinking about how women, we truly express ourselves and um, truly embody who we are through our hair. Um, And so the hair salon is just an easy place to go to. It's a fun place to go to. You got people doing hair. You got women going in and feeling like, okay, I'm going to go get my hair done and coming out and feeling like they got new everything. Mm -hmm. New hair, who's this? (laughs) Um, And so I really enjoy being in the the hair salon because I, I assumed that people would be shy of me taking their photographs before they got their hair done. Right. But no, it's a comfort zone. It is a true comfort zone where you can sit down, you can talk, you listen to some music, you can talk your trash, <laughs> talk about your problems, you can see some kids running around. I mean, it's it's the hair salon is home. It's a communal space. Yeah, yeah. it really is. Um, and so I definitely go to the hair salon. I go to the hair store. The hair store is just iconic. Like, you can find anything in the hair store. Bandanas, wigs, earrings, Chapstick, mm-hmm. bamboo earrings, sandals, sandals, <laughs> right? Sandals, dresses, lingerie. Right. I mean, you can find anything. I learned a lot. You know, I talked to this one woman at Salon Affinity, and she said um, she liked doing she likes doing hair because she likes to help her sisters fix their crown. Mm. Because if their crown is tilted or their crown is off, they can't 
follow their dreams. And her daughter, her daughter wants her daughter comes and help at the hair salon and she also wants to be a hairstylist. Um and just thinking about women who do their own hair, who want their sisters to look just as good as them, you know? Um and so it's really a place where I, I learned a lot because I didn't get my hair done in a hair salon. I was in the living room or someone's kitchen. Right. And so now we fancy. We go to hair <laughs> salons. And um, it's just a that's just another a moment where I'm just learning what, you know, black womanhood looks like, you know, like what the the measurable efforts we put into of just being ourselves and, you know, surviving and just living our everyday lives. You described yourself as a freedom fighter, right? Mm-hmm. Um why do you describe yourself as that, and what issues are you um, fighting for? I'm fighting to help us uninternalize these different stereotypes and myths that we believe in and that we think about that hovers over us and that truly is in our conscious. That's what I'm fighting for. Shan, if people want to see your photographs or follow, follow what you're doing next, um, how can they get in touch with you? So I have a website blacks and blues I have instagram underscore y-o-s-h-a-n-n yoshan like yoshan and you can follow sisters with stories it's on instagram right now but it will definitely make its way to other mediums and you'll definitely see more sisters with stories um outside of instagram thanks so much for coming in shan and talking to us thank you for having me Thank you for supporting Sisters with Stories. Thank you all. Shan Wallace, award-winning photographer and artist, creator of the new project, Sisters with Stories. Coming up, we're talking with LaDawn Black from the Reginald F. Lewis Museum of Maryland African American History and Culture here in Baltimore. We're going to learn more about Black women's contributions, what's happening at the museum, and just how important it is to understand our history and working for change today and the future. All that's coming up on Life in the Balance right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. I'm Jamila Krempel, your guest host for this episode. Today on the show, we're discussing increasing the visibility of black women's experiences and their political interest. Here to help us learn about black women who have made significant contributions to life in Maryland and beyond is LaDawn Black, Community Engagement Director for the Reginald F. Lewis Museum of Maryland African American History and Culture, which is located in downtown Baltimore. LaDawn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So for listeners who haven't visited, tell us a little bit about the Lewis Museum. Well, the Lewis Museum is the largest African-American museum in the state of Maryland. We are dedicated to telling the stories of African-Americans and our history here in Maryland. We have more than 400 years of history in the building. We also put on events, exhibits that feature the history makers of the future. It's a fantastic institution. The Lewis Museum has a permanent collection devoted to important women of the past and tomorrow. Is a collection like this unique even for a museum that's focused on African-American history? Absolutely, because unfortunately, a lot of times the history that's reported and documented reflects men and African-American men. It it can still happen in our community as well. So we are unique in that we make an extra step or take an extra step to make sure black women are featured heavily in the museum. 
Um, I cited st- I cited some statistics earlier in the show about the distressing current economic and social realities that black women face. And obviously, there's a long history of inequality in this country that women and women of color uh, have had to confront. Why do you think it's important that we learn not only what black women have confronted, but the work, how they've worked to overcome it? I think because any group that doesn't get a lot of notice when it comes to history books, television shows, movies, we need to focus on African-American women, especially black women here in the state of Maryland, because we have unique stories. We have unique experiences. We have a lot of firsts here in the state. Also because of our proximity to Washington, D.C., and because Baltimore is so close to the trade because of the harbor, there are a lot of stories there. There's a lot of industry that came out of Baltimore started by women. Like you said earlier, uh, black women's stories are have been missing from popular entertainment, from history books. And many of us learned in school about a few black women, right. Rosa Parks, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth. Right. And they might be the only black women that we know unless we seek out the, the information on our own. Who are some of the perhaps lesser known women uh, who, who appear in this collection? Well, uh, very prominently, we have Juanita Jackson Mitchell. She is the first woman in the state of Maryland, the first African-American woman in the state of Maryland to practice law. And, of course, we are all familiar with the Mitchell family, the Mitchell Courthouse. Right. So her line has gone even today to play into people who are politically and civically active. So we're really excited about that. And we have a, a portion of our permanent collection that focuses on her. Also, you mentioned Harriet Tubman. And we all feel like, oh, we sort of know that story. But because she has Maryland roots, we have pieces of hers that you'll never see anywhere else housed in our collection. We have insights on how she actually moved people along the Underground Railroad. We have quilts that tell stories. We have the oral stories, the songs, things like that that you won't necessarily see anywhere else. So a lot of the names that you're familiar with, you'll even get a different view of them as well. And how about the the second part, uh, important women of tomorrow that we should who we should know about? Well, we are always cutting edge. We want to give new artists, new voice, history makers of the future a voice as well. So in our Reflections of Baltimore series, probably our most recent series, we've had photography. We've had students from MICA. We've had students who work in the area of murals and things like that. And so we've been able to really focus on women here in the community, here in the state of Maryland, African-American women that are doing great things. Shan Wallace was one of the photographers that we featured. We are very familiar with a her. A fantastic <laughs> street photographer who really is now taking a focus on African-American women in her work. We featured Destiny Belgrave, who is a student over at MICA, who is doing the most incredible paintings. And she's also doing work with collages. And people love them when she had them displayed at the museum. And we've also featured Megan Lewis, who is a muralist here in the city. She just recently completed a mural for one of the city schools that is getting a lot of buzz. And she really rolls in the beautiful colors of our skin, our stories, and she makes sure that they're told in ways that are accurate. Are there particular issues that women in the permanent collection were focused on that you notice are still prominent today? Wow, so much, so much. A lot has changed. I mean, we've we've gained a lot of ground, but a lot of the things that they were fighting against back then we're still dealing with today. Colorism 
you know, uh, light versus dark, who was allowed to achieve and, and go forward and who wasn't. Based on skin tone. Exactly. Then also the issue of being qualified, having just as much education and experience and still not getting the opportunities. We focus on some African-American women who developed ways of doing business, ways of conducting trade, but because they didn't own it, the, their ability, their their trade secrets were taken and sold. Mm-hmm. So they didn't run it, but they did start it. Um, so that's something that we still run into today. And then also sort of standing up next to our male leaders, um, getting the love that we deserve. If we're just as active in a movement, if we're protesting, if we're, you know, posting, if we're the ones who are, you know, leading the rallies, do we get the same degree of, of respect as a man doing those things? So those are some of the same challenges that we're facing today. Obviously, you're familiar, like we are, with Shan Wallace, um, who part of her work is is in response to um, what she's heard and what she's observed in her own life about black women not feeling seen. Mm-hmm. And the museum is saying black women deserve to be seen through this collection, the different exhibits that you have. How can the contributions of black women be magnified, be more uh, be more visible? You know, we have to be vocal. Sometimes we don't want to talk about ourselves. I mean, even if you look at an institution like the Reginald F. Lewis Museum, our leadership is a black woman, our executive director. Three of our main directors are African-American women. So we're going to put those stories out there. But a lot of people don't even know that we have our staff is composed primarily of African-American women. We have to tell that. So we have to be willing to tell our stories. We have to be willing to brag on ourselves, which oftentimes, you know, we don't want to do that. We're like, oh, you know, I'm just great. I know. (laughs) I don't need to say it. But we need to say it. But also we need to document it as well. Tell me a little bit about the initiatives that you're working uh, working on to bring in locals and visitors into the museum to learn about these stories. Well, what we do is we, out- we do a great deal of outreach to the community itself. So we do have a website, lewismuseum.org, that has all the information on our upcoming events. But more importantly, we try to structure those events so that they're things that are relevant to the community. Uh, we have a series of lectures that really are interactive, Um, that uh, reflect what people are talking about today. We also make sure that everything that we put out is inclusive. So if we're going to have a conversation around any topic, are all the people at the table that need to have that conversation? So when we look at putting an exhibit together, we figure out how is it going to apply to families? How is it going to apply to women? How is it going to apply to other groups? Because we want everyone to come into the museum. And are you doing some work... um specifically with uh, black black female business leaders? We do reach out to black female business leaders. We host a lot of conferences and talks. Um, a lot of times it's outside people who come in and want to just share their knowledge, share the uh, opportunities with the community. So we do facilitate things like that. But also this summer, we're really excited because we have an exhibit coming up Black Women, Image and Perception in Popular Culture. That is actually coming up in uh, from August 1st to September 16th. It is uh, being co-curated with the University of Maryland College Park. And it's really going to hold that magnifying glass up to women who are doing great things and also sort of answer that question as to why we don't know more about them. How about events? Are there any events coming up that uh, you would like our listeners to know about? 
Well, for a full list of events, you can always go to lewismuseum.org or follow us on Instagram at, at Lewis Museum. But like I said, we have the exhibit on black women coming up, and there are going to be a host of events to sort of support that uh, endeavor. One particular event that I want to mention is Black Women in Popular Culture. The conversation continues. Um, that's coming up on September 15th. We're going to have a fantastic panel uh, filled with people who can address how Black women are reflected in reality television, music, media, things like that. Things that have been sort of problematic for us. You know, how can we turn that around and make those images work for us? So that's coming up September 15th. Definitely want to check that one out. Also, we have an exhibit called Hateful Things. It's going to run from August 30th through October 14th. And this is an interesting exhibit because it sort of covers all of the propaganda, the negative imaging, you know, the Jim Crow era negative imaging of African-Americans. So it'll have Mammy. It'll have, you know, the the exaggerated form of African-American women. It'll talk about Jezebel, drink stirrers, mugs, games, things like that. And while I know that this exhibit is going to upset some people when they come through the room, it is also an education on how especially black women were viewed and how we're viewed today and have we really grown. So that's coming up and we're excited about that. Well, thank you so much, LaDawn, for coming through and and telling us about um, all the things that the Lewis Museum is working on to elevate the stories of black women. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having us. It is our goal to get that story out there. You've been listening to Life in the Balance. I'm Jamila Krempel, your guest host for this month's episode. And I've been speaking with LaDawn Black, Community Engagement Director for the Reginald F. Lewis Museum of Maryland African American History and Culture. Coming up, two local activists from two growing grassroots organizations, Not Without Black Women and Black Girls Vote, will be talking intersectional feminism, advocacy, how and when to vote, and why it's so vital that black women take on leadership roles in the community and in government. That's coming up right after the break. Stay with us. Hi, welcome back to Life in the Balance. I'm Jamila Krempel, your guest host for today. We've been discussing the complex experiences of black women. We've heard from award-winning photographer Shan Wallace, and we've talked with LaDawn Black of the Reginald F. Lewis Museum of Maryland, African American History and Culture. Now we're turning our attention to two local grassroots initiatives that are elevating black women's voices. I want to welcome to the show Cassandra Johnson, Community Engagement Director of Not Without Black Women, and Natasha Murphy, Deputy Director of Black Girls Vote. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Let's start with you, Natasha. Black Girls Vote was founded in 2015, correct? Yes. It's based here in Baltimore. Obviously, your intention is stated in your in the name <laughs> of your organization. But what ages are you targeting and um, how are you working to get them to the polls? Sure. So we are really focused on some of our younger voters, that 18 to 29-year-old set who historically haven't always had the best voter turnout. But, you know, in the most recent election was actually the only age group that we saw a slight increase in participation. And so we try to engage with this key demographic really by meeting them where they are. So I know um, you mentioned we were founded in 2015. In 2016, when Beyonce graced us with her presence here in Baltimore, <laughs> we actually had a tailgate at MNC Stadium, you know, before her concert in an effort to kind of reach that key demographic in that informal space where they're not necessarily thinking about voting, but they're already corralled in one spot. Right. Very smart. 
So are there um, certain initiatives or, or ways that you found are um, are most effective for reaching this population? Sure. So a lot of times when we try and engage with the younger voters, we hear, you know, the constant epithet of, you know, my vote doesn't matter, you know, the electoral college, this isn't really for me, I don't want to do jury duty, kind of a whole host right. of, you know, excuses or ways to try and get out of registering to vote. But we found what was really, really successful and kind of targeting that one policy area you know, kind of what what's the issue that you care most about, be it student loans, public safety, education, any of, you know, the myriad of policy issues that impact our day-to-day lives by honing in on that one specific area and highlighting how our elected officials and the decisions that they make um, kind of impacts or changes that area of their life has been really effective in getting folks engaged in the process. Cassandra, tell us a little bit about Not Without Black Women and um, tell us what the name refers to. So Not Without Black Women um, is a unique platform that provides black women the ability to have full autonomy over their voices, bodies, and freedoms. It's kind of focused on applying to gender and sexual oppression lenses towards our fight towards liberation. So um, what that means is that black women and our issues are intersectional. And basically, the issues that are important to black women typically are important to anyone that's um, interested in equality. Um, Every issue that you can think of has um, some level of black women interest within it. And so Not Without Black Women is essentially kind of establishing that um, there aren't any causes um, towards the fight for equality that can succeed without um, the input um, the creativity, the organization, the the energy of black women. And that has historically been the case and also is the case going forward in the future. Intersectionality um, speaks to, um, it was actually originated by um, a black woman who uh, was writing her doctorate and she was looking at how issues that involve race and gender apply to black women. And um, it kind of coined the phrase intersectionality from that because it was basically the place that black women exist um, lies in between gender and race. Um, and often we are pulled one way or the other um, in our struggle. Um, historically, that has been the case um, with many movements, um, especially with the feminist movement, where um, our voice has been utilized to further cause, and this happened with civil rights as well. We were big organizers that were a part of that, but were marginalized and disenfranchised in some way by both entities, um, both on the gender equality side and the, the racial equality side. So intersectionality speaks to being able to um, exist in both areas and, and not have to choose between the two. This question is for both of you. Before you started your organizations, did you find that um, existing organizations or groups weren't reaching a particular population or weren't addressing certain issues? Absolutely. So I would say I'm a Baltimore transplant, you know, originally from New York. I've only been in Baltimore about four years now. And, you know, when I first came here, I was looking for those organizations to really kind of get involved in. And civic engagement and voting rights is one of my passions. And while I found that many of the, you know, fantastic, well-established organizations may have had, you know, an arm or, you know, voting rights was one of their particular initiatives, I wasn't really able able to find an organization whose core focus was really around, you know, making sure that African-Americans and particularly black women as, you know, one of the most active voting blocks were being, you know, adequately represented. So Black Girls Vote was definitely kind of that perfect fit when I found them. I see. 
And what about you, Cassandra? And um, much of our interest um, aligns with um, Black Women's Votes. Um, definitely in terms of the voices of black women, uh, most of the time we are the most marginalized and underserved um, we're impacted by criminal justice system and prison system, um, sexual assault survivors um, in a large way. But many times um, our voices are not heard in, in those areas. You can look at the Me Too movement, for example, which was started by a black woman. But Toronto Burke. a lot of people do not know that. They, they kind of know about the movement um, through Alyssa Milano when she used that hashtag on her Twitter. So... Um, that is just one example of how um, we tend to be underserved and underrepresented. Natasha, um, you have a list of issues, right, that you yes. think are key, key issues from black uh, women voters, what mm-hmm. you've heard from your members or um, the women that you interact with. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Sure, absolutely. So the top three that we hear constantly when, you know, we're out there engaging with folks, it's definitely access to economic opportunity and be that, you know, the opportunity to expand their small business, the opportunity, you know, to have, you know, gainful employment that pays a livable wage. That is one of the key priorities for black women here in Baltimore and really across the nation. The second is definitely access to um, educational opportunities. Women are exceptionally concerned about the quality of education that their children are receiving and how prepared their children and the rest of their families are for our 21st century society and workforce. And then finally, it's access to quality health care. Um, as Cassandra mentioned, we, we are overrepresented, unfortunately, in you know areas around health disparities and some of our health outcomes. So ensuring that black women have access to quality health care to make sure that you know we're okay to continue to take care of everyone else mm-hmm. and be it in you know our family or community or overall society. So those are the three areas that black girls vote. You know, those we try to engage with our members as well as just do outreach around and even holding our elected officials uh, elected officials accountable in those particular areas. Cassandra, what about um, themes or some of the things that you hear from the women you meet? What are they saying that they need or things that they um, are expecting, <coughs> things that they want from policy policymakers? For one thing, we did a lot of work um, in the 2018 Maryland General Assembly. And um, the key issues that we got bills passed on were sexual harassment, menstrual hygiene products, and pregnant inmate bills that kind of allowed for us to speak on reproductive justice as a part of the Reproductive Justice Inside Coalition. Not Without Black Women this year has really focused on the most underrepresented of, of us. And, and like I mentioned, um, that would be those of us who um, are impacted by the prison system. On Mother's Day, we did, um, or we worked with um, an organization that did a Mama's Day bailout um, for women that. who are in jail um, waiting to be, you know, for their court date and they're just sitting in jail and they have children and they're only sitting in there because they couldn't afford it. There were stories where um, as little as $100 were keeping them from being home uh, for Mother's Day. So, um, again, in a lot of ways, uh, most of our um, initiatives in this year has been around our most underrepresented women um, within our prison systems. 
Natasha, Black Girls Vote has grown in a short amount of time, and yes. you've exceeded your goals of registering voters. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So when we first kicked off, we had set an initial goal of registering 10,000 people and 10,000 new voters in the greater Baltimore area. And so in that first year of operations, we were able to register 12,000, and then to date, we're currently at around 16,000. And so this has been you know, an amazing and immense success, something that we're very proud of. And really, what's contributed to that is success is, as I mentioned, meeting people where they are, as well as tapping into our truly youngest voters or even those who aren't yet eligible to vote. So here in Maryland, you can actually register at 16. Mm-hmm. And so we've you know, been lucky enough to engage with some of the high schools in the area, as well as just trying to meet with some of those young people. I know most recently we were actually at College Signing Day here in Baltimore, mm-hmm. and that was a great opportunity for us, you know, A, congratulate <laughs> all of these amazing high school seniors as they continue on into their collegiate journey, but also making sure that they're (laughs) registered and prepared for this upcoming election. I want to turn um, to talking about black women holding elective office or running Mm -hmm. for elective office. Obviously, the mayor of Baltimore City is a black woman. um, But if we look at the Baltimore City Council, only two black women are on a 14-person council, and that's freshman council member Shannon Sneed and Sharon Green Middleton, who's been on the council since 2007. There has never been a black female governor, but in Georgia, Stacey Adams is hoping to be the first. She won the Democratic primary in May. According to The Washington Post, black women make up less than 5 percent of office holders in Congress, statewide executive offices and state legislatures. Um, This question is open to both of you. Are you focused on getting black women to run for local offices or are you hoping that in your efforts with voter registration and, you know, civic engagement that those seeds will be planted? Both (laughs) (laughs) would really love to see um, representation that is more than just representation of black faces and actually has community involvement. Um, That's a really big, important part of supporting any candidate. And I think if they were to come out of our organizations, that would probably be pretty awesome because they're involved in our community. And so, yes, the encouragement and the empowerment of our kids and our women. I know that Brittany Oliver, founder of Not Without Black Women, um, is very, very engaged and invested in having black women have their voices heard and to speak up. So um, I have no doubt that that will become a part of um, our process, which is to help bring forward, you know, black women who want to run for office and make change. How about you, Natasha? Absolutely. Black Girls Vote is on a (laughs) similar similar wavelength and, you know, definitely envision to see more African-American women, you know, serving as those elected officials. And, you know, we're doing that in addition to kind of cultivating that informed voting block. It is planting those seeds and, you know, encouraging black women to take that leap of faith. And, you know, our voices are incredibly important and vital to be in the political sphere. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Life in the Balance. I'm Jamila Krempel, your guest host for today. And we're talking with Natasha Murphy of Black Girls Vote and Cassandra Johnson of Not Without Black Women. Cassandra, I know you stood alongside Not Without Black Women founder Brittany Oliver when she spoke at the Women's March in 2017. I'm going to play awesome moment you said. I'm going to play a brief clip of that moment. Issues where black women are the face include human trafficking, police brutality, rape culture, weight equality, street harassment, workplace discrimination, immigration discrimination, all of it. Black women are the face of these issues and we need you. 
Everybody needs to do a better job at supporting black women, right? There were some um, feminists of color, some um, womanist women who don't align with, I guess you could say, the mainstream feminist moment who felt like um, the march was not representative, representative enough of their issues or their identity. So some women just decided not to go. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about the experience for you. The experience was awesome. And I think what needs to I, I kind of want to make sure is is mentioned is that. Brittany was one of those the year before who dissented to what um, the representation for the Women's March was about. And she did. She took action. She wrote an article about it. It was noticed by the founders of the Women's March, and they asked her to come speak the next year, and that's how we ended up there. So mm-hmm. we didn't come with the um, intention to support the march from a representation perspective. We came to remind those that were there that feminism would not be there without black women. And it was really kind of our rallying cry um, the entire um, time that we were there. In fact, we had a chant while we were there that was not without black women. So um, we kind of did that throughout um, the event. And even as we left the stage, um, we chanted that as well. So it was kind of um, the cornerstone of why we're there, which was really just to remind everyone, you know, that all of this that you're doing here um, can't be done without black women. You have to we have to be a part of it because when you support us, you support everyone. Do you feel like people got that? Yes. I think um, one of the things that I loved about being there was watching um, the response because I think I went expecting the response to be like, why would you come here and protest the protest? (laughs) But (laughs) it really was kind of an aha moment for a lot of people. You could see the awareness coming to people's faces. And for those who knew and understood, I loved uh, being able to see uh, faces that didn't look like mine identify with what we were doing and saying, that's right, not without black women. And even in later looking at um, comments, um, from the the live video, it was just a lot of support coming from different angles that I would have never expected. So it was very encouraging to see that people um, actually understood, you know, where we were coming from. Natasha, we hear um, we hear a lot about black issues as an umbrella topic, just like we hear about women's issues. Why is it important to understand the different um, experiences of black men from black women? Um, white women and black women and even different groups within um, black womanhood. Absolutely. So I think it is very important for us to recognize the nuances of, you know, what has been coined as identity politics, because those experiences oftentimes are incredibly different. You know, as we talked about the notion of intersectionality, that exists because our experience as black women is very, very different from, you know, white women, Hispanic women, Asian women. We have very different experiences and ultimately very different policy needs. And it's important to recognize all of those as as we seek to elect individuals who, A, are able to serve a broad constituency and, B, really be kind of accountable and dedicated to enacting change that's going to benefit the greatest number. 
For the person who says, you know, I get it, I understand, I want to support you, even if they don't identify with you um, from from personal experience, um, how can they do that? How would you instruct them? Um, I don't know if either of you are comfortable with the word ally, um, but how can how can they? Uh, Cassandra's nodding your head. Yeah, uh, we have many allies within our ranks. Um, even when we were at the Women's March, we had many allies. Um, definitely welcome men and women who support um, black women being heard and um, having their voice heard. Um, we do not discriminate in that way. The focus is um, that change cannot occur without black women and that we need to be represented as well. And if that is your interest, then we welcome you. Yes, Black Girls Vote takes a very similar stance, the notion of we support who supports us. And oftentimes we'll hear, well, what about men? Or what about, you know, other people vote too? And at the end of the day, while we are unapologetically black, we're not exclusively so. So if there are individuals who, you know, may not be black women, we definitely seek their support because they can exist and exert power in spaces that we can't yet. So it's important for them to really leverage that ability. And also, I would say one of the huge um, pieces for our allies is the ability to listen and really take note of what black women are telling you (laughs) and make an effort to understand it. And then armed with that information, go forth into those spaces and, you know, kind of exert that power and be visible where we sometimes can't be. Yeah. Listen to black women. Trust black women. You know what we were talking about. <laughs> we have a good track record. Um, our history speaks to that. And um, anything that you can do to take that information back into your communities, um, just like Natasha was saying, um, we definitely want that to occur. Um, that's where change, um, a big part of change will occur, is not just speaking to those who are disenfranchised, but taking it back to those who deal with the privilege and helping them see Um, where that privilege um, is impacting those that are disenfranchised. Thank you both so much for coming in today and telling us more about your work. Appreciate it. Thank you for having We just heard from Cassandra Johnson, Community Engagement Director of Not Without Black Women, and Natasha Murphy, Deputy Director of Black Girls Vote. 